Well, again, it's good to see you this morning, and uh, I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to First Thessalonians in the fourth chapter. We're going to look at the last passage or paragraph of First Thessalonians 4, which is verses 13 to 18. And if you'd like to use your pew Bible, you can open up your pew Bible to page 987. Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm preaching a series right now going through uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And as we're in the second part of the book, Paul has turned from his initial matters of greeting and so forth to uh, addressing a series of issues uh, that were in the church that he probably heard about from Timothy. Because the Timothy has just returned to Paul from having visited the church at, uh, at Thessalonica. He's spoken to them about uh, sexual conduct, and he's spoken to them, as we saw last week, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, he's spoken to them about work. And these, of course, are two fundamental human experiences or spheres of life, uh, our vocation, our work, our sexuality. He's this week really turning to a third area or aspect of life that's unavoidable, although we may want to avoid it, certainly, and that is grief, grief in the face of the death of a loved one. And so, I'd like to read verses 13 to 18 to you. This is what Paul writes. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would ascend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord and therefore encourage one another with these words. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, Paul turns our attention here to the subject of grief in the face of death, the death of uh, loved ones. And with respect and with honor, uh, I want to name ten saints among us who have most recently died, who have most recently uh, been called home. Wes Robinson, I see Joanne today. Ruth and Yancey Garner. Phyllis Hendricks. Um, Kim Godienko's mom, Jim Beckett, Julius Jacobs, Ruth's husband, Bob Hankel, Bill Nairn, Carolyn Arnold, Tom Like, and there are others. I'm just taking the ten most recent. I think of Eileen um, um, and others who've gone to be with the Lord. You know, grief in the face of death is a test. Grief in the face of death is a test of faith, like 
like no other. And it's true whether that death is a result of violence or an accident or a disease or illness. Dr. Leighton Ford, an evangelist who is Billy Graham's brother-in-law, tragically lost his son. His son died, Sandy, died when Sandy was just 21 years old. And Dr. Ford at that time or shortly after wrote, The struggle is to bring our faith and our emotions together. You know, the death of a loved one is a shocking thing. It is a wound to the spirit of everyone who was bonded by love to the one who died. And the closer the bond, the deeper the wound. Dr. John Stott wrote, and I think it's true, to lose a loved one is to lose a part of oneself. You know, we were never created to live isolated from others. We're created to live in community and relationship with others. And so when I think of Dr. Stott's words, I think he wrote very wisely. And even as we are in anguish over the loss of this one that we love, we also, uh, our souls can so easily experience that additional anguish of wondering what, you know, what happened to him or to her. I mean, where is that? Where is that person uh, now? You know, we, we, we see the body lowered into the ground. We see, we see the grave filled in and it feels so final and it feels so permanent. And apparently the Thessalonians weren't prepared for this. And it's understandable. The church was planted within 15 years or so of Jesus' resurrection and ascension and the promise of the angels that Jesus would be would be coming again and, and, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, and here was a church that was full of the life of the Spirit. They probably were looking to Jesus' return before any of them died. The high expectation of His coming again. Why wouldn't they believe He would come back within that generation? So their hope in Christ basically was to, to avoid death, that Jesus would return first. And I have to say, I remember when I became a Christian, I was just shy of 20 years old. That was my hope in Christ. Jesus is going to return first. (laughs) That was my hope. No dying for me. And hopefully no dying for my loved ones who are in Christ. Uh, I mean, it sounds like the very best thing that could happen. It would be in sync, completely sync with our natural revulsion at, at, at death. But in this passage, Paul's writing to these, to these young Thessalonian believers, to those who perhaps were unprepared for the grief associated with dying. Paul teaches something that's very new and that really is only true because of the gospel. Uh, hope in Christ is what enables us, is what comforts us to be able to accept death and endure grief without Being ruined by it. Without being destroyed by it. And that hope is from Christ. It lies in his own promise. And this is the way Paul puts it. That when he comes, those who have died in Christ will rise first. He says they will be the first to rise. And this is Paul's whole point. The point of this passage, Paul is not focused on focused at all on the rapture of believers alive at Jesus' return. His focus is on the distinction and honor that will 
that he will pay when he comes to those who have died in him. Those who have persevered faithfully until the very end. He will raise them first. Verse 15 says, For this we declare to you, a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not, and that's a double negative in Greek, will not, not, will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16, the Lord himself would ascend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise, will rise first. Verse 17, then we, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now there are two rich ideas in this passage, a number of rich ideas, but two in particular that I'd like to draw your attention to this morning. And the first is this. In verse 15, Paul speaks about the coming of the Lord. In fact, 16 times in the New Testament, uh, this term is used. The New Testament speaks of Jesus coming. And what's significant, I think, is that not once can I find the verb return used of Jesus' return. It always speaks of his, of his coming. And uh, the term that is used for his coming is, uh, has made its way into our English language because of its specialized use in the New Testament. And that term is called parousia, or parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, for those who want an examination later. Uh, in, in, even in Acts chapter 1, when the Lord ascends into heaven and the angels speak to the apostles and they say to them, why are you looking up into the sky? They don't go on to say Jesus will return. They say Jesus will come. He will, he will, he will come. Well, where does this word come from? Where does it come from? Why is it used in this way? When perhaps more naturally, it would be say, it would be, you know, we would say he's, he's going to return, which is what we commonly say in the church today. Well, the, we find this term rooted in actually Old Testament. I mean, the coming of the Lord refers to the sudden revelation of God's presence and power. And I have to say that the same word, parousia, was used of the sudden revelation of hidden deities or hidden divinities in Greek mythology. So it's understood to, to refer to a manifestation, a revelation of God in power. It had another also, it also had another special use. And this may have been more in mind, I don't know. But when the emperor personally visited a province, it was called his parousia. It was referred to as his coming. Even if he'd come and visited ten times before. It was never said that the emperor was, was returning. It would be, the emperor is coming. Are you prepared for the parousia, the coming of the emperor? And as you can imagine, it was accompanied by all kinds of hullabaloo and, you know, all kinds of fanfare, you know, trumpets blasting, commands being given to make way for the king. And as the emperor would come, he'd be surrounded by loyal defenders and high officials. This was the coming of the emperor. And this is the way it was used. It was used of royalty. 
It was used of the most highly dignified officials. So what Paul is referring to here when he speaks of the coming of the Lord, he's referring to the glorious revelation of God in the person of Jesus when he comes personally, when he comes individually, when he comes visibly as the Lord of Lords. You see, the difference between the word like return and the word like parousia or coming is when we speak of the coming of the Lord, we are speaking of who Christ is. We're speaking to his identity. It's the coming of the Lord. Very potent. Very potent. And there is a second term also that's very rich, that's linked with the first term. And I want to draw your attention to that also. And it's a very simple verb translated meat. And we encountered that in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Well, again, when a dignitary was paying an official visit to a city in the Greek time or in the Roman period, when a dignitary is getting ready to pay an official visit, the leading citizens of that place would come out to meet that dignitary and then escort the dignitary into the city on the last stage of their journey. It was a high honor as well as great responsibility to escort that royal figure into the city. We have a sweet example of this in the New Testament among Christians. Uh, coming and meeting. And it's in Acts 28, verse 15. That text tells us that after all of the trials and the sufferings and the hardships that Paul had endured, a wounded man in so many ways now being taken to Rome to stand trial and, and face the possibility of execution. That text tells us that finally Paul was drawing near to Rome. And uh, he was on the Appian Way, which is a famous highway where emperors walked or, or rode. And Luke tells us this. He says, and the brothers there at Rome, when they heard about us, because Luke's writing this and he was with Paul, the brothers at Rome, when they heard about us, came out as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. This was a very courageous gesture, I think, on the part of the believers, because they were going out to this, this man in chains, who was being accused of being an enemy of Rome, and they were coming out to receive him as, as a high dignitary and to pay him honor. And imagine this, escorting a, a prison group, you know, escorting Paul back to Rome as if he were the emperor, as if he were a royal and a noble figure. Because in the kingdom of God, he was. He was. Now, Paul, in this passage, is telling grieving believers, you comfort each other with this. You remind yourselves and one another of this. That at the Lord's coming, the dead whom you weep and lament for will be the first to rise in order to meet Jesus in the clouds, the clouds of glory, to join him in his escort. They are not left out. They are not left behind. 
They will be in the forefront of Jesus coming, even as they are now the first to be with him in heaven by virtue of their death. He will be the first to be with him in the vanguard of his return at the resurrection. The first to rise. You who are alive when he comes, you'll call second. So don't for a minute think they've been left out, left behind, or forgotten, let alone being dust. They're very precious to Christ. You know, there's a lot of things that uh, Paul doesn't tell us about Jesus coming. Uh, it would be years before Paul would write 1 Corinthians and speak about how we will all be changed in the blink of an eye at his coming. There are many other things about Jesus coming that we have questions about that Paul never addressed. But he could not have been more specific, more pointed, or more definite about this. That the dead in Christ will rise first. Those for whom you grieve will rise first. Just as those for whom you grieve are already with the Lord ahead of you. Paul stressed the certainty of this. Because of the honor and distinction of it. It is the focus of this passage. And to pass over it lightly is to miss a rock-solid keystone of comfort for believers who are grieving the loss of a loved one in Christ. When we're in those situations, we need specifics rather than speculation to comfort us. We need hope that we can, can hang on to. What will we see? What can we know to help pull us through our, through our grief? We need concrete hope. And we need to extend that to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Because when a loved one dies, and it can take our breath away. It can, it can leave us faint-hearted. And that's why Paul says, comfort one another in this. We're never, the truth was never intended only for us to speak to ourselves, but to share with one another, to build each other up. This is what it is to be the body of Christ. Think with me for a moment, if you will, about how Paul began his instruction. He said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. We don't not want you to be uninformed, or literally the term is ignorant. We get our word ignorant from the Greek word, anyoyo. We don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, of those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. We don't want you to be, we don't want you to be ignorant of this. We don't want you to go into a grief that ignores, that does not take into account does not embrace what is noble and what is true because of Christ. So the truth is that we prepare for and we endure grief by rehearsing and confessing and when the time comes, relying on the hope that is certain in Christ. One of the things that, uh, sayings that, that uh, David Galetta um, has uh, given me over the years is, you know, in the such times, we have to remember what we believe. And it's very, very true. Now, the world makes hope up. 
when Pandora in Greek mythology opens the box and all those stinging moths come out of, of death and misery and disease and, 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 and pain and poverty. When all those stinging moths come out and come into the world and start stinging Pandora and she's so shocked by it. She doesn't know what to do and she finally looks in the box and there's one thing left, right? And it's hope. But what was that hope? Well, really that hope was nothing. Seneca defined hope as an uncertain good. It's an uncertain good. And as you may know, in Greek uh, mythology, and I think it's very dominant still in contemporary uh, pagan mythology, in Greek mythology, the dead are transported to kind of murky place called Hades, and uh, they take on the form of kind of flimsy, filmy figures. Called shades, as a matter of fact, which is where our word shades comes from, kind of filmy, flimsy, well, we might say ghost-like figures. In this world, in the world, hope is filmy and is a flimsy pipe dream. How often do you hear it? Because it's expected to be said at funerals. He or she is in a better world. Well, the world knows how to make stuff up. But I have to say to you, and think with me about this, that our modern time, our postmodern time, is not that different from the first century. In the first century, behind all of those empty assurances of some filmy and flimsy existence, there was an entrenched and a hopeless cynicism expressed on many tombstones, many grave inscriptions among the Greeks and the Romans. And the inscription went like this, or it goes like this. It can be read today, beginning with before we existed. The inscription reads this way. I was not. I was. I am not. I care not. I am not, so I care not. I was not. I was. Now, I am not. I'm dead. I care not. Now, that is what I would call hopeless comfort. (laughs) That's comfort without hope. I don't care. I'm not here. Okay, pretty cynical. Okay, but it's certainly hopeless comfort. And I think the world is full of hopeless comfort. But just as there's grief without hope, you see, there's comfort without hope. I've heard it all at funerals. So have you. But Jesus has so much more to give us. I mean, the answer to all human misery, including death, including grief, is the gospel. The gospel, as Tim Keller says, it's not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Z of Christianity. We return to the gospel again and again and again. Paul's response in this passage, keep in mind, in verse 14, Paul's response after his introductory comment, his response in verse 14 begins, For since we believe, Credo, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the rest follows. Well, what is that? Since we believe Jesus died and rose again. Well, that's, that's the gospel. That is the irreducible core of the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus triumphed over death and judgment. And he triumphed over death and judgment in order to share that triumph with us. That's the only reason he went to the cross. There was no other reason for him to die. No other reason for him to lay down his life except to triumph at the cross for no other reason than to share it with us. He didn't need the triumph. He was sinless. He didn't need it. It's for us. It's for us. 
We believe that Jesus died and rose, and so we believe. Jesus isn't the Savior of the dead. He's the Savior of the living. He's the deliverer from death, which is why Paul writes as he does. Of believers who have died, he writes this way. He says they're asleep. He says they've fallen asleep. Is this to make light of death? By no means. By no means. Well, where does it come from? Well, the thing we need to remember today, won't go into all background and detail. The thing that we need to remember is that Jesus used the term. It was Jesus who brought this into the church. In John chapter 11, Jesus uses this term to describe his dead friend Lazarus as he was bringing his disciples into the city to go to the tomb. He said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. You hear that language of asleep and, and awaken. This is no reference. Sleep is no reference to Lazarus's soul. There's nothing in Scripture to teach some soul sleep of dead believers until at the resurrection they actually wake up and they, after sleeping for an indefinite period of time. That's not what this is referring to. This is in reference to the body of Lazarus as it lay there in the ground, sleep-like in the ground. And Paul and Jesus is making this point to his disciples, which they did not understand at the time. John tells us they did not. That as surely as the sleeper awakens, the dead in Christ will rise. And Jesus will see to it. And yet you know, if you know the story, and I think all of you know the story of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. And yet you know, at that tomb, Jesus wept. Jesus grieved. And the term for that's used there is he, he wailed, he grieved, and he wept with contempt for the bitterness of death and the suffering and the loss that had been associated with it. But then he spoke, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. When Jesus comes with a cry of a command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet sound of God's call, all who are dead in Christ will rise and they will be the first to rise. Those who have endured to the uttermost will be first to rise. First. And you can be assured of it. You can know it. So when we speak... And we say that Jesus is returning. We speak of his return. Well, anyone can return. I think that, I don't mean from the dead, I mean return. Anyone can return. I think the term is probably too narrow to understand what will happen. And perhaps that's, I think that's why the word coming is used again and again. Jesus is coming in the fullness of his triumph over sin, death, devil, and all the forces of evil and misery. And this means the revelation of his glory, the resurrection of the, of the dead, the rapturing of those believers who are alive when he comes, and the reunion together forever. And then the restoration of all things. That's what Jesus' coming means. It's so much more than he's returning. He is coming. He is, the king is coming. Thank you, Lord. 
all the death has taken away from us will be restored in Christ and so much more. Whereas the Apostle Paul put it. And so we, it's we all together. Three times he says together, all together in this passage. And so we will always be with the Lord. And therefore, he said, encourage one another with these words. This is living hope. And it is real hope because of Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, you said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's blessed for the grieving because of you. It's the comfort that you give, Jesus. It's the comfort of the gospel. It's the hope of the gospel, which you've already, this good news, which you've already ratified, which, which you've already paid for with your blood and in your resurrection, which you have secured for us. It's the truth. And the gospel delivers us from such uh, darkness and, and ignorance and those things that feed hopelessness and despair and self-destruction. And we thank you so much. And I pray today for those who are in distress and grief over loved ones. And I pray for all who've lost loved ones in Christ as they come upon that next anniversary of death or that next anniversary of learning that the die had been cast on that dear one's life, that they would not be with us long. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to confess and rehearse and speak to one another the great hope we have in Christ so that we grieve like Jesus grieved. Waiting for the sound of his voice. And we'll be careful to give you thanks, Lord. And I pray for those here who also may be naturally afraid of death themselves. None of us want to die. None of us want to go through dying. But God, I pray that you would give us comfort and you would give us courage. And that our comfort and our courage at our own death would actually increase and grow the closer we come to our own death. So that even in our dying, we can boast of what lies immediately ahead. Where, oh, death is your sting. Lord, we want to live as that people in the world. We want to model that faith in confidence. And we want to be comforted by it as well. Holy Spirit, please do your work in us. We're weak without you. Help us without you. Amen.